I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Michelle Titolo, a lead software developer currently at Capital One. Michelle has been building microservices at Capital One, and we talked about what they are, their increasing popularity, and the value that they add to an organization. Michelle also gave an insight on her experience developing microservices and good practices. We also talked about mobile app development and how it has been evolving. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes, share it with your friends, or send us a message by going to thewomenintechshow.com or tweet at techwomenshow. Michelle, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thanks, Edna. It's great to be here. You gave a talk at DockerCon this year called Making Friendly Microservices. I actually attended this talk, and before this, I hadn't heard about the term microservices. So I wanted to start off by talking about this, since you've worked a lot in this area. And first of all, how would you define a microservice? So microservices have a few characteristics. Um, they're small and do one thing well. Um, they are independent of other parts of your system. Um, they own their own data. And most importantly is they communicate primarily via APIs. Um, so mm -hmm. in a very brief nutshell, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what a microservice is. Yeah. What's one example of a microservice? Um, the very, a very basic example. Yeah. So a couple years ago, I was working on an app, and this was the first time the company had been working with Apple's push notification service. Um, they had a monolithic repository, so anytime you wanted to make one change, it affected you know, the main code base, and there was a whole bunch of dependencies and things were really messy. So their first foray into microservices was doing this push notification um, stuff because they didn't want to have the push notification APIs in the main repo because it doesn't relate to the rest of the website. Um, so they created a, a new little microservice just for... Um, interacting with Apple's service, which is obviously a third party to them, as well as interacting with the application because obviously the iOS application is the only one that would be using that service. So um, so for them, that was like a really good place to get started because it wasn't going through and refactoring the really big code base. It was starting out with something really small and really specific. Yeah. So it's good for isolating some portions and also in the future for maintainability, because if that needs to change, it's only one smaller portion versus the all the project. Exactly, and base. it, it yeah. really helps decouple work, um, because mm -hmm. a lot of the time, you know, obviously products get larger over time, and that's just how software works, it just gets bigger. So by creating really good boundaries, you let people really focus on their one area of special uh, specialty or their one area of concern without necessarily making them worry about how their one little piece affects the yeah. entire rest of the system. Now you do still yeah. have to think about 
the larger system because as you build out these microservices, you might have one little service doing one thing over there and another one over there, and then they start talking to each other and they can get kind of chatty. Um, mm-hmm. So being aware of how these different parts are related is also really important because you don't want to add a new microservice that depends on like 30 other microservices, except those other microservices might not be able to handle the load that that one microservice is sending them. So it solves some problems, but it also um, brings other problems up that you wouldn't have in a monolithic application. Yes. And uh, also at, at this conference, I noticed microservices were a recurring theme. They were being widely talked about why do you think they're becoming more and more popular? There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all is the move to cloud computing where maintaining data centers isn't really a thing that a lot of companies want to do. It's expensive. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And then you have to go through and actually worry about hardware failures like on your own premises. It, it, it just gets really complicated. So the cloud makes it really easy to just say, hey, we want to create a new service that is, you know, only has like three different, three servers running this one service. It's really easy. You can spin them up and down as needed. You can redirect traffic a lot easier than you can with the data center because data centers are hardwired. Um, so without cloud computing, microservices wouldn't really be a thing. Mm-hmm. And then also it's, especially in larger companies, it's seen as a way to get rid of that mono repo. Even though I know Google loves it, um, a lot of other <laughs> companies can't really deal with yeah. that kind of scale, especially being distributed, especially having different kinds of uh, tools that they want to use. So microservices really let individual teams or individual departments, however you want to split it up, um, really own the product that they're building um, yeah. and decouples it from what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. But you still need to be a little bit careful if there's a different team using your microservice and you're about to make changes there, right? So it Absolutely. doesn't it it decouples it, but you also to some extent. Yeah, I mean, you still need to be a really good citizen within the ecosystem publishing API documentation, um, yeah. letting people know about deploys, versioning is a huge huge part of this. Uh, because as soon as you start making those breaking changes, like it might take a couple months for everyone that's relying on your microservice to actually update. So instead of just rolling out version five, you can't and, you know, removing version four, you actually have to maybe keep that older version around for a little bit longer until everyone can upgrade. Mm-hmm. So it's trading one set of problems for another, but at the same time, you're trading one set of benefits for another. Yeah. So at, at Capital One, how do you inform, for example, if you make a change, how do you inform your dependents that something is going to change? How are you aware of your dependencies? Um, that's a great question, and I wish I had a good answer to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it just like the traditional way, like, you know, Team X is using the API? Yeah, it's a lot of that ways. Um, Okay. Like a lot of other APIs out there, um, even the the public APIs that Capital One has published, um, which is in beta right now, 
like every consumer of an API has a specific API key. Um, and we have a couple other pieces of meta information that help identify certain clients. So, um, mm -hmm. we can go through and, you know, check out who's using the version four of this API. Um, and we have points of contact for, um, okay. you know, getting in contact, which is just how the public dev exchange works. It's just, oh, okay. yeah, it, it's just, you know, internal versus external. Yeah. And in, in this same talk, one of the things you mentioned was if a dependency goes down, your service, however, should not go down. So uh, what would be an example of this? That Have you encountered this? I mean, <laughs> everyone runs into problems. Yeah. Um, so what this really comes back to is writing really good defensive programming. Oh, okay. um, so I saw this great presentation a couple of years ago, earlier in my career, and the presenter showed up wearing a lab coat and an umbrella and a pair of goggles and um, was carrying a snow shovel and was basically saying, I'm being prepared for whatever the weather is today, even though it was like September in Boston. Um, okay. And kind of that image has yeah. stuck with me. And, you know, when it comes to having dependent microservices, it's you know, you need to treat it just like if it's an error, like your database goes down or, you know, some piece of data that you're looking for in the database doesn't exist. It's the same kind of thought that has to go in. Mm -hmm. So it's just about being really good about handling errors and don't just, you know, raising an exception, which people love to do in programming, just like throwing up your hands and saying, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but then also because these are microservices, and a lot of the times when microservices start getting chatty, they'll might get, a, they might get a response from one service they depend on, but another one might be down. So yeah. then you have to have really good communication, usually through documentation with the people who are using the microservices to say, Hey, when you only get some of the data back, this is what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, microservices are about creating better experiences because it allows you to iterate faster. Yeah. And so you want to make sure that the people who are ultimately using that microservice can still provide the great experience, whether it's to external facing customers, whether it's to internal customers, whether it's to other developers. So it's, it's really all about communication when it comes down to it, which is not that much different from working in a monolith. Yeah. Speaking of monolith, um, what does a migration story look like when coming from monolithic architecture to a microservice? It is really about separating concerns. So mm -hmm. finding those spots where, you know, does part A and part B, are they really tightly coupled? Are they loosely coupled? Figuring out those relationships um, and then picking your dividing lines. And then instead of... Yeah say, just querying a database for a piece of data, you're then making an API call. Um, yeah. It's a big journey. And um, I've read a bunch of stories of people who've gone through this. And it's, depending on the size of the code base, it, it usually takes a while. <laughs> um, I've only been wow. at Capital One for a year, so I actually don't know what it looked like before a year ago. And um, we've had microservices on the team that I've been working on. So I don't know how that journey went. <laughs> but I do know that now oh, okay. we've got lots of microservices. So um, mm -hmm. I did not experience monolithic 
um, at this current job, but um, mm -hmm. at another job when I you had, joined, when you joined, they were already in microservices. Um, I mean, there might be some services way yeah. back in there um, that aren't, but Capital One has literally hundreds of APIs that we use internally. Mm -hmm. So it's no one keep like, there's no one way that anyone can keep track of all of them in their head. So I'm sure there are some monoliths there somewhere in the nether, but I honestly don't know of any. Um, but another thing that I saw at a previous job that did have a monolith was they wanted to start breaking it up into microservices. So what they did was they had obviously big monolithic code base, but they had separated their servers and they literally just routed traffic. So um, if someone was making an API call versus loading like the home page, API yeah. calls would go to one cluster of service servers that would mostly just be handling all the API calls. Like the home page would be a different cluster of servers, like user settings would be another cluster of servers, which are all running this monolithic code base. Yeah. But it allowed them to balance between the different levels of traffic that the different parts of the site got, which honestly yeah. helped them really have a high level of availability and do multiple deployments. Because if you're only like if you're making a change to like user preferences, you don't necessarily need to take the home page down because the traffic's getting routed to a different server. Oh, okay. So this is a good way to get an idea maybe what the benefits of a microservice would be without being a microservice. To some degree, yeah. It it really helps figure out those separation of concerns. Yeah. Um, cause then you can see, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's always a cluster of databases somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. so you can go through and see, oh, does user preferences for some reason call a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be in user preferences, maybe like, like when mm -hmm. we load that homepage, like what is it trying to talk to? And you can kind of figure out those lines of separation by playing with your server configurations. And it also mm -hmm. really helps because then you can start adding in extra layers of caching, So if users are logged out, they can just get cached versions really easily and you can, you know, put the caching layers in the correct spots instead of having one giant caching layer for everything, which then leads to all sorts of really funny problems. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the Capital One, the development infrastructure. For example, is there testing in production since this is a bank? So I'm just curious about the process there? Yeah. So we have a lot. So Capital One is a really big organization and it's federated. So there's mm -hmm. a, you build it, you own it mentality. So mm -hmm. teams are responsible for developing software from the beginning all the way into releasing it into production. So there's no one way that anyone works. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, And there's, you know, obviously some tools that we try and have consistency over, yeah. but at the same time, each team is responsible for all the way from development on local machines to that end production. So, um, overall, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't unfortunately have an answer for that, but, okay. um, we do have, you know, multiple different layers of environment. So we have development, we have our, test environments that have um, all sorts of test accounts and all of the, you know, closely mimicking production so that developers who are using oh. those can 
really get a sense of how this will work once it's in production. Um, and then yeah. obviously we have production. So. Oh, okay. Cool. And uh, well, in addition to working with microservices, you've been an um, iPhone app developer for several years. And I just wanted to ask you, when you're developing APIs that are specifically going to be consumed by apps, are there any different aspects than when those APIs are going to be consumed by web applications? Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. So remember, at the end of the day, microservices APIs are going to be consumed by something. And the needs of a mobile application are different than the needs of a web application. Not only do we have to worry about bandwidth a lot more, uh, just because people have phone plans and they'll get mad if you use up two gigs of their phone data in a month. Yeah. Um, but also we have to deal with things like what happens if a user starts loading a screen and then goes into a tunnel like that. That's actually something that we have to worry about. So um, figuring out uh, ways to get the most data in the smallest like package size, as well as like mm -hmm. the fastest way um, so that, you know, hopefully the user can finish loading all the data that you need before going into that tunnel. Um, yeah. But also are, are these uh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. You, <laughs> you ask. Oh, okay. So are, are these different APIs or does the API receive, oh, I'm a phone, um, serve me this? So it really depends on what you're doing. As I said, Capital One has hundreds of APIs, so we kind of get to pick and choose which ones we want. But at the okay. same time, there may not be an API that has the exact data set that we need. So yeah. we have what we call experience APIs that we uh, basically take the different microservices that we want to use from the back end and create a new microservice that'll go out and get the data from those other microservices and return us the app one payload. Um, and this really helps us customize the payloads and URLs and all of that stuff really closely and make it really closely tied to the client. Um, yeah. Because even though we might be like we have an iPhone app, we have an Android app, we have um, there's the wallet, iPhone and Android apps as well. And even between apps, between platforms, depending on what the ultimate experience is going to be, data is going to need to be formatted slightly differently. Um, there yeah. are sometimes when you want more data, sometimes when you want less data, sometimes the client does a lot of caching. So you don't necessarily need to return full data objects all the time. So it yeah. really helps us customize the and experiences and make those better by making the data like fit what we're doing really well. Yeah. Be aware of who is the end user basically. What exactly. And devices are the, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Capital One has uh, people using our mobile apps to access their financial information about twice as often as the websites. So mobile is really important to us. So making sure that that mobile experience is really great is, you know, definitely something that we're working on every day. Yeah. And how have you seen apps development evolving? I think you got an early start on app development, right? Yes. I started working before iOS was called iOS. It was the iPhone SDK 3.2 um, before the iPad wow. came out. Yeah. I remember seeing an iPad for the first time. Um, 
And it was the iPad one, which was obviously really clunky compared to the really, you know, sleek ones we have now, but it was still yeah. really cool. Um, so, I mean, it's been really changing mostly because like app development started kind of very soon after the API kind of shift started. And I yeah. think without the focus on mobile, we wouldn't see nearly as much focus on APIs because I've built over a dozen apps in the app store because I, I did three years of consulting. So that was a lot of um, smaller projects. Mm-hmm. And every single app that I've worked on has needed data from a server. Like they're tied. You need to get that data out of those databases because like we live in a multi-screen world. So people want to be able to load up their information on their phone. They want to load it on their desktop. And now we have TVs that can also load them too. So, you know, Netflix is a great example. Um, I try my, uh, my team's based in DC. So whenever I go to DC, you know, if I was watching something on Netflix on my Apple TV at home, I want to be able to load up an iPad in the hotel that I'm staying in and continue watching that same show. So it, you still need that central information somewhere. And obviously on a device is a terrible place (laughs) because you don't really want your computer talking directly to your phone like that. We've seen how that doesn't work very well. So it's, it's really changed because expectations have changed. And back in the beginning, you could like everyone in their, you know, family was making to do apps. That was like a big thing. And most of them were just, only on the phone, only locally. But then people were like, huh, I want to see my list on my computer. And I've actually been searching for a to-do list app that doesn't sync because uh, at work, we're not allowed to, like, there's security things, so I need something local. Oh, okay. And it turns out it's like the opposite now, where it's like everything's like, oh, sign up for an account and we'll sync to all your devices. And I'm like, can I not? Yeah. <laughs> so are you going to make it then? <laughs> no, I actually just turned off iCloud on my work computer and just started using reminders. <laughs> oh, okay. So That's it, smart for now. Yeah. For now. Yeah. It turns out, yeah. it turns out reminders without iCloud on is just stored locally so I can use that. <laughs> oh, okay. That's cool. And what about your perspective on native apps versus web-based apps? Have you worked with both like web apps, for example, the ones that use Cordova and web technologies? Yeah, I did some phone gap stuff a couple of years ago um, before it got bought by Adobe. And I know there's now a couple other ones, including Iconic mm-hmm. and They've come a long way. That's definitely for sure. Um, the early days, it was really, really frustrating sometimes, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done on the devices to enable the same kind of experiences. Um, yeah. because for instance, there's, there's an app that I use, uh, very frequently. It's a travel app. Uh, I travel a lot and yeah. I know it's web based because of the position of the scroll bar. <laughs> Um, oh, really? Yeah, Where is so, the like, scroll bar? It, it goes above the top navigation bar of the app. And oh. when you build apps natively, that, yeah. that generally doesn't happen. You usually have to work to make that happen. Um, okay. As well as they're like, once you start actually working on apps, you start noticing those really little details. 
um, when something's like a web page versus a native app, um, including the keyboard, there's like that little extra toolbar with the forward and back buttons that doesn't actually show up when you're in a native app that only shows up when it's a web-based app. And yeah, you start noticing those little things and then you just start like, you start seeing one thing and you're like, oh, this might not be native. Um, And then Mm -hmm. there's other problems where you can't, those apps don't have as good um, handling for things like being in the background, um, forget multitasking, (laughs) (laughs) which is honestly awesome. I have a iPad Air 2 and like the multitasking stuff is, is so useful. Um, I can't Mm -hmm. imagine using my iPad on a regular basis without it now. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's really hard to do with something that is not native. Um, especially because Apple's, I mean, Apple pushes you towards doing native stuff. Um, and honestly, Android has the same thing because the HTML web page stuff on Android is like even worse. I know it's gotten better. But <laughs> the performance or just the performance developing? of it. Yeah, I did okay. some uh, Cordova Android. I was doing an SDK, but it had a bunch of UI in it. And it was a pain. <laughs> wow. And a pain to use or a pain to develop? A, a pain to like fix like performance bugs. Um, Android has wow. historically had not great scrolling performance in general, but you start adding like HTML into it and it's just like, what is going on? <laughs> oh, wow. Why is I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But also um, the whole, like a lot of those web technologies are based on the JavaScript engine that is built in with the operating system. Um, yeah. Apple's one has been historically a lot nicer than the one that Google has. So. Mm-hmm. So last question, what technologies are you going to be focusing on in the next Five years. Oh, five years. Hopefully something that hasn't come out yet. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, I've been doing iOS for a number of years now. I've been doing web stuff. Um, I've done a lot of Ruby development, uh, not a couple one, but before. Um, so I'm really looking forward to Swift on the server. Um, because Mm. I think Swift is a really fantastic programming language. I love working in it on iOS. And with the open source stuff, I think it's, I think it's going to be really awesome to use on the server. I'm also looking forward to seeing how this whole, how do I put this? The containerization plays out. Um, yeah. because things like Docker, um, where we used to have VM, like you used to have like one machine, one instance of an application, and then we had VMs and now we have containers. And so I'm really curious to see where that goes. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, in addition to like cloud computing, containers are kind of like the new hot thing. And yeah. it really like it really does allow for some really fantastic stuff. But at the same time, like um, we have a bunch of continuous integration servers. And the thing about doing iOS development is you need to always build on a Mac because you can only run Apple's tools on Mac OS. I have to remember to say yeah. Mac OS because they renamed it, which <laughs> yes. means you have to be running a- um, Apple hardware. So, you know, like I can't wait for that to be better <laughs> because yeah. like, you know, scaling up build, like scaling up the amount of 
builds you could do on one machine is what containers, like they help you do that, but we can't do it mm-hmm. yet natively on Mac. And I think that would be really cool. I don't know if it'd actually happen. <laughs> yeah. But I, or maybe somebody's working on it. I don't know. That's a very interesting idea, actually. Yeah, because right now what we end up doing, and I've done this at a bunch of jobs where you just have, you know, a really souped up Mac Pro or Mac Mini um, back in the day before the Mac Pros got updated. And you yeah. just have like a couple, usually about two VMs running on it that you switch between, but not nearly as good. <laughs> yeah, so. definitely. Well, Michelle, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.